Hi, my name's Ian Beaton. You're about to listen to everyday people from differing backgrounds, but with one thing in common, a story. A story of adversity, a story of inspiration, a story of laughter, sometimes a story of sadness, or simply a story to make you think. I believe everyone has a story. I also believe that story should be shared. Welcome to So What's Your Story? So welcome to this week's episode of So What's Your Story? In the studio today, I've got with me an amazing woman, uh, Lucia Cantor-Santamore. Lucia is a VP for UN Women's USA in San Francisco, a practicing attorney, a law professor turned everyday, everyday negotiation superhero. Her personal and professional journey takes the classic superhero origin story of the unremarkable to transform into the remarkable. She teaches how to harness your everyday negotiation superpowers, to land your dream job, be the most powerful person in the room, or just to get your kids to eat their peas. Author of the really stylish, comprehensive 21st century negotiation guide for the forces of good, the superpower of everyday negotiation, Lucia knows that negotiation isn't just for business. It's everybody's business. Hi, Lucia. Welcome to So Watch Your Story. Well, thank you. I'm really delighted to be here because I know we are going to have a blast. We are going to have a blast. But let's start off. Uh, the listeners will straight away recognize that accent being American. Whereabouts in America are you right now, Lucia? I am in beautiful San Francisco. Yes, San a destination Fran. city. Yep. It's a really a magical place. It's, it's, it's a city, but it's got kind of a small town feel. And I'm someone who's from a small town. So San Francisco is the perfect city for me. And it's it's probably the most European of the of the American cities, I think, which is a little ironic because it's on the West Coast and, you know, came later than the, the earlier ones. But it's got a real European feel. It's very walkable. It's only seven square miles. Um, just a great, great place. And that's interesting, isn't it, with that European slant as well, because I've got to ask you, Lucia Cantor San Amor. What a beautiful name. What is it? What is its, what is its roots, Lucia? What, what's it, I'm, I'm sensing possibly Italian. Yeah, io sono di origine italiana. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm Italian oh, of origin. Yeah. yeah, I speak Italian. <laughs> I taught Italian for 10 years. I have a chocolate Labrador who only speaks Italian. Um, <laughs> so it's a thing. It's a thing. I've spent a lot of time in Italy. Uh, so yes, I very much identify with my Italian roots. So that's a place very close to my heart as well, Italy. Absolutely love it. So attorney, professor, VP for UN Women, author, and negotiation superhero. That's a bit of a lot to have in your <laughs> CV or your uh, 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 you know portfolio there, Lucia. Where did it all begin? What? Where did this journey all begin for you? Oh, my goodness. It's, look, I am actually no one special. And I say that not in a self-deprecating way. That is not what I mean at all. I I really do mean it in the, the, the classic superhero origin story, just average person who turns out to, you know, grow into something, blossom into something remarkable, but, but without being bitten by a radioactive spider or doing years of elite training on, a, on an invisible remote island. Um, I was I was that kid... In a small Midwest town, just, you know, I had the eye patch from a lazy eye and I had my secondhand bicycle and I was trying to speed away from my childhood bullies and I was physically awkward and I was socially awkward and just, just sort of, uh, my parents worried about me, sort of what, (laughs) what's going to become of this kid? Like, what are we going to do with her? And I ended up going from that small town of 4,000 people in the Midwest to University of California at Berkeley, which is just a shockingly, you know, different culture. And Uh my brother and I were actually the only ones in our high school classes to go to California at all for school, much less the radical UC Berkeley. And I think that shaped me a lot. And then you know, law school was never really the plan for me either, because 
I, I just wasn't smart enough. I wasn't good enough. And, but I had this really sparkling mentorship out of college. And I, because of them, I mustered the courage to apply to law school. So there I go. I go off to law school and I'm not smart enough and I'm not good enough. And there's lots of meanies there. And it was hard. And I almost dropped out. And my, my contracts professor convinced me to stick around. And, you know, I, I just kept showing up every day and it's remarkable what can happen if you just keep showing up. So, so now let's let's fast forward to after law school and it's a it's a foggy San Francisco day in 1998. Before we fast forward, I just want to pull you back to some of those early memories because I think it's probably relevant. This this mm. this, this 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 kid with the eye patch with the with the little bit of, you know, uh, uh you know, uh, may, may we say as harsh as bullying going on as well? Oh, absolutely. Did even mm-hmm. back then, did even back then, Lucia, you learn to sub- subconsciously or consciously learn to negotiate? Do you think? My earliest negotiation story is, at least the one I remember consciously, does date back to when I was 10 years old. And that's in the preface of the book, Yet No. The answer is no. I didn't. I never thought of myself as a negotiator. That was something that businessmen did in big boardrooms, you know. Um, and in fact, I would say just the opposite. I I was actually taught to be powerless my whole life. Wow. I was taught that. Wow. I was taught to be cooperative, to be helpful, to give and give and give no matter what, to just fit in with whatever the existing structure was, to never defy authority or to question it. And that actually taught me to to quiet my voice, to ignore my instincts. And it hurt me. It hurt me as a child. It continued hurting me up until 2021 when I, I turned 50. It that was really tough, that emotional mapping. And I think it happens a lot with women and girls. It happens to girls uh-huh. who become women. Is really tough to overcome. It's really deeply rooted in you. So th- I think the reason that I'm a such a super stealth negotiator today is purely practice. It's because I've been doing it so long. And that's that's kind of what I want to tell people is, hey, this is not some otherworldly skill for, you know, big <laughs> mergers and boardrooms or just the prenup or just the, I always get the, ooh, Lucia, how can I negotiate my salary? And I'm like, okay, okay, just back up there, sister. Like, uh, number one, let's change the terminology to compensation package because salary is just one aspect of compensation. And number yeah, like two, like yeah, that. exactly. And once you realize that, you you then notice all the other options for negotiating it. And number two, well, that's kind of high stakes context. If you have not been practicing negotiation in everyday, familiar, low stakes context to build the muscles, okay, then well, of course you don't feel confident and competent doing the high stakes negotiation. It's just a matter of practice the same way you get the six pack abs, all right? You don't get them by watching the workout video. You get them by doing the plank twist. <laughs> you have to perform the plank twist. And so, no, am I a naturally gifted negotiator? No. And I'm not sure that anybody is. I don't believe in natural gifts. Um, I believe it's through practice. And so, no, I am no one special. I am not specially endowed. I've just been doing it for a long time. I've had a lot of practice. Yeah. And and I'm going to come to this later in this session because, you know, people will have noticed in the intro that quirky little comment, but it's one of yours, actually, Lucio, which is, negotiating just to get your kids to eat peas because yeah. when we think about negotiation <laughs> you're dead right we often speak we often think about negotiation high stakes we think oh executives negotiate lawyers negotiate mm-hmm. um, you know senior people negotiate but actually no um Everybody, to a degree, negotiates in one way or another. We might be negotiating with our partner mm-hmm. to 
go and load the dishwasher or unload the dishwasher. Yeah. We might be negotiating with our kids to mm -hmm. clean their, t their room yeah. or to do their homework. We might be negotiating with our colleagues to help us complete a task mm -hmm. or to do a task for us. So there's lots and lots of elements that people think, oh, God, no, negotiating, I can't do that. Right. But they're actually doing it all the they're time. They're doing it all the time. So, and it's just a matter of internalizing that voice that you are a confident and a competent everyday negotiator. You're negotiating with yourself all the time yeah. too. You know, if I if I work out before work, I can watch a movie after dinner or, you know, just wow. negotiating for that next available parking place at the grocery store. It's everywhere. It's every day. It's at your kid's school. It's in the bedroom. It's in the kitchen all around you. So start <laughs> thinking of yourself that way and practicing it in little ways and it's just magical what can happen <laughs> if you keep doing yeah. it. Well, that's that's a nice little segue we had there. And I'm sorry because I did come in when you were just getting to the point of where you were 27 years of age now and you're sort of embarking on this next chapter in your in your life. So should we should we should we push back to that point? Because I'm sure that's that's sort of a pivotal point and, and an interesting point that we need to uh, cover. It, it first of all. Well done. You are listening. And that's chapter five, how to be the most powerful person in the room. It's the, it's the quiet superpower of everyday negotiation and you're doing it. So well done you. And and it was a pivotal moment. So I have to trace back to where I was. I, okay. Yes, I was 27 and I'm this, I'm this young attorney at a law firm in San Francisco and I'm so eager to prove my worth. And a yeah. senior partner took me to a meeting with the Longshoremen's Union right on Fisherman's Wharf. And I was the only woman in a room full of tough guys with no necks. One of them wondered <laughs> aloud as I entered the room, who invited the president of the Lollipop Guild, referring to me, which what? was then, yep, which was then met with chuckles all around by his compadres. Then he pointed to a chair in the corner and told me to sit there. So yes, oh they, yes, they put baby in the corner, you know, to quote from Dirty Dancing. The chair was so huge. Like I, you can't tell because I'm sitting down, but I'm itty bitty. <laughs> it was okay. so huge. It just swallowed me up. My feet didn't actually quite touch the floor. I looked and felt ridiculous, but I was exceedingly well-prepared and Having been told I was invisible and to stay that way, I used the tools I did have at my disposal and powerful ones at that, listening and observing. And I ended up cracking the code that day because I alone was able to notice something that all those other guys couldn't see or hear because they were in it. They were so busy talking. Okay. Ah. So that's 1998, right? Right. That's around 1998. Now let's put the pieces together. So fast forward again to 2021. And I'm 50 years old after a full and international career as an attorney and law professor and a nonprofit founder and a special needs mother. And I'm president and CEO of a very male dominated sports organization behind 94 years of men in that role, okay? Ooh. And I endured a prolonged, highly organized, and horrific group bullying campaign. It, it was so extreme and so <clears throat> harmful that it made me review my whole life and career and finally see a couple of things. One was the persistent pattern of bullying I had normalized for 25 years, but just kept trying harder to prove myself and to fit in, to prove my worth. And number two, that I had been trained since childhood to be powerless, to be silent, to not question authority, to just give and give and give no matter what. And I realized how just about every time I had spoken up about inequities, and believe me, I did, I had been ruthlessly punished. I mean, I lost jobs over it. And once I saw all of this, I couldn't unsee it. And I finally said, this ends now. If this is 
still happening to someone like me. Okay, I'm white. I'm educated. I'm privileged. In a yeah. woke place like San Francisco, we're in. So what happened? This is this is like a, a light bulb moment. I'm guessing yeah. more than a light bulb moment. It's like a revelation. It, it was. It's like I had. I had. Because I'm sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's like you've had this like revelation, and 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 you then sort of regroup, I guess, and start to almost like analyze what's been going on in your life for all these years, and and it comes down to this awful happening to you, this injustice of bullying, right back to that day when. Um, you were put in a corner and made to sit in the chair and just listen and not say anything. Right. And then for years and years, what, over two decades, right? right. Well, it goes right back to the childhood, to speeding away right. from from the bullies. It was a whole lifetime. And that's why it seemed so normal in the workplace. I'm like, oh, nothing to see here. This is totally normal. I, you yeah. know, if it feels familiar to you, it's kind of comfortable, actually, even though it, it could be abusive. So uh, that was the real revelation was really just two years ago when I went, not not even two years ago now, when I sort of went, hold on a second. This has actually not been okay my whole life. And I it just took wow. something particularly vivid and harmful for me to finally see the the pattern. So um, it did. It made so, me review my life. It made me review my decade of teaching negotiation at two University of California law schools. And then I made a, <laughs> all these revelations. And it made me notice for the first time that every single assigned reading for all 10 years at two prominent law schools had been authored by not just a man, a white man, all the books on negotiation were written by men. And I went, wait, 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 hold on. How is, no. I said, that's not possible. And, and that I wouldn't have noticed it. So I, I got in my little time machine and because <laughs> I started teaching in 2003 and I, I set the dial to 2003 and I went back and I said, well, what, what books and readings could I have had been assigning that were authored by non white cisgender men. And there was nothing. There's one. There was one, that, a book that came out of Princeton University Press in 2003. And then we had pretty much nothing until 2015. And then we had another woman then. And then we have had sort of one per year, not quite one per year. And I'm, I'm like number six. And uh, I decided, okay, now that I've seen this, I can't unsee it. And now I have to do something about it. And it wasn't just that observation. It was, it was an observation you already made that, that most of the literature, all of it really, it was written by elite executives. Okay. C-suites and MBAs and attorneys yeah. and sales and marketing professionals for that same audience. So mm. no wonder people think, oh, negotiation is this really specialized skill and I don't have it sure. and I have to hire someone to do it. I have to hire an expert. Sure. And good, it's just poppycock. I said, no, 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 we have got to bust this myth because I mean, one of the things I say very early on in the book is do not hire me. I don't want you to hire me. You, I got to teach you to fish. You can do this yourself and you can save that money for a family vacation or to put into your child's college fund. Don't spend it on high-priced attorneys. And it also had to be done with style. Yeah. It's like that old fable, you know, don't don't give a man fish for food, give him the rod and teach him how to how to fish. You know, it's you it's, said it's, it. a, it's a very it's a very interesting uh, paradigm there, Lucia. And and obviously you've come to this point where you've wrote this amazing book, which is called The Forces of Good, The Superpower of Everyday Negotiation. But where do you start with this? How do you, how do you start to, because obviously you've had this revelation, you've come to this point where you're yeah. like, oh, hang on a second, hang on a second. Like, <laughs> everything's been written by men. Everything's been written by CEOs or entrepreneurs and it's aimed at them. So where do you start to almost like put the jigsaw together uh, from, from, from sort of your your own personal experiences, your your career, but also then thinking, I want this book to to help everyday people. And and your yeah. points that you've just made there is, 
you actually want to empower people. You don't want them to come to you to hire you to teach them how to do it. I'm sure they can. Mm. But uh, mm. you, you, you're, you're giving people a tool to empower them. It, it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pick on you a little bit if you don't mind because empowerment is actually – it's actually one of those words that irks me a little because you know what I is say people, to people is I'm not here to empower you. Okay, Empowerment means – you haven't arrived in your power. You could still be held at bay. I'm here to tell you, you already have the power. It's already Ooh. in you. You don't need me to empower you, okay? Ooh. You've got it. It's just a matter of you tapping into it. That's what I'm saying, okay? You have the power. So let's get you tapping into it. And when you ask me, where do you begin? You start with chocolate. Okay, the the very first, I didn't see the that very coming. first, you didn't see that coming. Well, because the very first chapter is the chocolate, it's the chocolate negotiations. And it was the very way I started every semester of law school with the students. It was with the chocolate negotiations. And I had them arm wrestle for chocolates. And I had 10 Hershey's Kisses. I passed out to each pairing. <laughs> and we went through the rounds of the chocolate negotiations and all of the lessons, the, the basic negotiation themes that come out of the chocolate negotiations. So I just started the book the same way. And I also said, okay, how do I, how do, I do this? Well, first of all, we got to make it stylish. Okay, I'm Italian. So style's really important to me. It has to be fun, has to be easy to read. It can't just be prose, prose, prose. Can't do that to people. Right. So I, I decided to illustrate it with my own fifth grade level art. Okay. It's bad art. I don't care. Here you go. You know, it's, I just made messes with color and I shared them in my book. And, and then there's all these everyday super tips that are in these boxes that come at you. Everyday super tip, right? So you can kind of flip through it and it doesn't bog you down. And it's like a layer cake. It's the yummy layer cake that just, it builds and builds and builds. And there's like a lot of depth in there too. Like it really gets good. It, it's like a slow burn. So a little something for everybody. So if you're an expert, you're going to learn something new. And if you're a novice, you just hit pay dirt. <laughs> so yeah, got to make it fun. Negotiation is fun. It is fun. So um, that's how you start. You make it fun and splashy and stylish and you illustrate it and you start with chocolate. And I love those emotive, sensual words that you're using almost, you know, <clears throat> I'm sort of mm -hmm. thinking here, Okay, so for me to be a good negotiator, I gotta love chocolate. I gotta get into the cake and the layers. No, I'm joking, Lucia. But I, I, I hear where you're coming from because this is a great way to 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 bring this into people's fold into their lives. Because as I said earlier, you know we've got to remember that we negotiate a lot throughout our lives, and if we do it well, we can improve our lives. Yes, you. So. You cannot just improve it. Yes, you can improve it. You can make it more comfortable. And so there's your flipping of the script, okay? We're talking about storytelling. This is what's your story, flipping the script. Do you like what I did there? So um, I do, I do, yeah. <laughs> right. So negotiation is a pervasive zone of discomfort for people. And what I'm saying is it can actually create more comfort in your life. If you start mm -hmm. to practice it in those everyday low stakes ways. And one of the reasons that I accepted your invitation to come on this podcast is because of the name of it. What's your story? And there's a whole Thank chapter. You. There's a whole chapter on storytelling. Do, now, do you ever, uh -huh. have you ever thought of storytelling as a negotiation tool? Well, here's the thing, Lucia. I, 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 people who know me professionally, aside from this podcast, will know that I've had a, an interesting career in, in sales and business development. Mm. And often when you're in that area, I found for me, certainly being in a consultative uh, uh, sort of arena, uh, part of the process, unconsciously for me, was telling stories. You would yeah. talk to clients about examples of things that you've done for other people, how it had worked, yeah. almost like a case study, but not calling it a case study mm -hmm. to quote. You know, it was like a story unfolding. And when I think about growing up for me, and that was the fascination of bringing this podcast together. So what's your story? Um, people 
And it's such an ancient art of telling stories helps us to learn, evolve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's interesting that you should put it into negotiation stakes as well, storytelling within negotiations. Tell us a little bit more about that. Your instincts really served you well there because I don't know that a lot of other people, now you were in sales, so I see how you made the connection, but I don't know that a lot of people would make that connection between storytelling and negotiation, but it it's really powerful. It, you know, good stories create a sense of connection. It's, it's so ancient. All cultures have stories and history of stories. It makes people more open to listening, all right? They want to listen to a story. People are less likely to interrupt a story than they are mm. when you're listing all the reasons for your demands, right? And it kind of makes mm -hmm. them wonder, ooh, what will happen next? Mm -hmm. It's extremely effective at building rapport, which is a cornerstone of negotiation. And one of the, the most often skipped over steps that I see in this era of uh, video conferencing, you can uh, transcend different learning styles and convey lessons with relatable yeah. examples and stories. They're, they're disarming and they're nurturing, kind of reminiscent of a parent reading a bedtime story. They're excellent memory aids. So in a tense moment in a negotiation, it's easier to recall a story than data. They're normative. Like you just mentioned this. Yeah. They comfort yeah, people not? by reminding them this isn't the only time someone has dealt with this kind of challenge. Others have figured it out and, and so can we. And they're also hard to argue with. They can't really be debated mm. or discredited by the other side. So you see now what a great tool that is storytelling to have in your quiver. And I tell people to have a few stories, you know, to, to think of a few that you can have ready to kind of pull out when you need them and maybe to break impasse or to build mm -hmm. rapport, you know, all these things. And, and, and I realize this, this is a, a, an expansive question, but what makes a good negotiator versus a poor negotiator? Mm. So if you're we were to ask a lot of negotiation experts what the number one most important negotiation skill is. Most of them would say planning. And okay. I say that's number two. That's number two. This is where you say... When, yeah, when you say planning... This is, what, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you mean by that? You know, what, what, when you say planning... <laughs> you were supposed I mean, to say, well, so what's number one? <laughs> Ah, you, missed your, you missed your cue. Missed my, missed my cue. Chris, you can cut that bit out. Right. When, when, Lu, when Lucia is just on her little bit there, what's number one, Lucia? Oh, my goodness. Um, okay, so number one, we've already talked about it, and you've already demonstrated it, and you do it so beautifully as a podcast host. It's listening. Okay. Listening is how you become the most powerful person in the room. When I was 27 years old that day with the longshoremen, I was actually the most powerful person in the room. The one not talking, the one observing, the one who figured something out because I wasn't so busy talking. And I completely changed the course of that negotiation because of that. I have been in, at this stage of my career, after 25 years, I, it's fair to say I've been in thousands of mediations and negotiations. And I have been in many where I am listening to the other attorney's client better than they are. Uh -huh. And do you know what that makes me? The most powerful person in the room. In the room. Now, people will say, oh, Lucia, I'm a good listener. I took an active listening class and I do it all the time and I'm a great listener. Mm. You know what? <laughs> Look, I'm sure you're a superstar. You're probably not as great a listener as you think. <laughs> and so I really unpack it, you know, what it really means to listen and what it doesn't mean to listen. So that's number one. Yeah. And then, yeah, number two is, is planning. And people, I used to have my law students... They had to all submit a, a planning memo before each simulated negotiation in the class. They hated it. 
they thought it was such tedious, busy work that they had to turn in this planning memo. And they turn it in. And I could usually tell the ones who had just kind of treated it in a perfunctory sort of just check the box (laughs) way. And I did not care, did not care because what I was doing was teaching them a habit, teaching them the habit. It's all I cared about. Now, these days, those law students, they are the global heads of departments of name brand corporations. They Mm -hmm. are senior and managing partners of elite law firms. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I still keep in touch with some of them and they've contacted me. They listen to my podcast. They've read my book. And they still call me professor. It's very cute. And I say, professor, you know what? Those planning memos, we hated them. They were gold. I'm like, you're welcome. (laughs) You know, and it doesn't necessarily mean hours, but that you do, you run through a ritual of planning. And it's actually what makes you so much more agile when you're in the negotiation. And it's what enables you to be spontaneous. And then there are going to be those moments in life where you are, a negotiation is happening on the spot and you didn't know it was going to be happening. And it's just in the moment, you got to do it. And you didn't have the benefit of planning, but because you've had the habit of planning for all these other negotiations, you will be better a better spontaneous negotiator because of it. And there's a there's a very vivid example of that in the book too. And, and, and you know, you just got me thinking um, because I am listening intently, Lucia. <laughs> um, and you just got me thinking of a good example that I can relate to from, from my own personal life. And actually, I know that this happens amongst actors and amateur drama actors and things. When, you, when you're sort of about to go on stage, you don't just go on stage, right? You don't just turn up when there's an audience and just go and do what you got to do. There's months and months and months of preparation and planning and rehearsing and going over the lines and da 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 yeah. until you've absolutely nailed it. And the yeah. director has said, okay, guys, we got it, yeah? Curtain's up tomorrow, we're going to do it. But then when the curtain goes up, because you all know each other on the stage and you've already rehearsed it and you've already gone through your lines and you know the little nuances and you know the little cues that are going to bring other people in and then something goes wrong that you couldn't have anticipated. Just like life, sometimes things go wrong. But because it's rehearsed, you know, or one of your fellow performers will step in and cover those cracks. Yeah. The audience, the audience doesn't, doesn't see it because they don't know. They don't know what's on the script. They don't know where you're supposed to be on stage. They don't know that, so, that one of the scenes has just fell down or somebody's just tripped or somebody's, you know, trod on their skirt or, 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 or whatever it might be. Somebody's dropped a prop. But I guess the reason that I'm saying this is because it very much correlates with what you're saying. When you've prepped your students over, over that time for planning, you're right. When the impromptu or the unexpected happens to them, they're prepared. They're, they're ready. They're, they're good to go because they've had this this base of, 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 of this planning exercise. Does that make sense, Lucia? It absolutely makes sense. I agree with everything you've just said. And it's what also allows you to be really physically and mentally and emotionally in the moment of the negotiation, all right? Because you've got that plan as your anchor. Now you can really pay attention with your mind, body, and soul and listen to your instincts, okay? Your spidey senses too. Pay attention to those. Are you getting some weird feeling, right? Something that doesn't quite make sense. Does someone seem like they're uh, hurrying you along and creating a sense of urgency? Don't be hurried. In very rare cases, is there a real sense of urgency? It's often manufactured by the other side. It is a type of scarcity principle. Act now before this deal goes away, right? <laughs> likely what you've just discovered, you're in sales or were, <laughs> likely what you've just discovered is that they're in a hurry, okay? Yeah. So pause, go, hold on a second. Don't like, don't allow yourself to be rushed. Now, if you haven't planned and you're trying to just think of everything on your feet and you're, you're trying to keep too many things juggling at once, you're going to miss those cues. So planning allows you to be really present there and notice things that you otherwise might not notice. I love that. I love that. So obviously you've wrote this book. It's it's your passion. It's 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 flying off the shelves. It's doing really really well. Uh, the forces for the forces of good, the superpower of everyday negotiation. 
what are you hoping this effect might have, Lucia, when the reader reads it? And in what way? Learning that you have the power of a negotiation and you can do it, and you have that voice and you have those skills and you probably already have the skills and you're probably already doing it. And it's just a matter yeah. of honing it. It is transformative. It, trans it can transform your life by creating value, right? Creating, even, even just starting to get into the habit of saying, are there any other offers or discounts that apply to my purchase today? Okay, start oh, asking that. that. I love that start one. Start asking love that one. It at the at the brick and mortar checkout counter and in yep, a live yep. chat for an online purchase. Here's what's so great about it. Number one, it's one of those low stakes everyday situations, familiar situations uh -huh. that I'm saying to practice in, right? Doesn't really yeah. matter what the answer is, right? You don't lose any yeah. face. You're probably gonna buy the stuff anyway. Doesn't there's no downside. Okay, number two. You're going to be surprised at how often the answer is yes. Now, is it going to be every time? Of course not. And the analogy I like to use, and I understand maybe most of your audience isn't American, but it's such a perfect analogy, is that the best hitters in the history of baseball, like the, like the Baseball Hall of Fame guys, their batting averages do not go north of three. Now, what does that mean for non-baseball people? That means that for every 10 at-bats, they're only getting a hit at most three and a half times. And those are okay. the best guys. Okay? So if you're like an average player, you're getting a hit, I don't know, like one and a half to two times. So wow. you got to keep stepping up to the plate. Keep asking. Keep doing it. Rinse, repeat, track your results. Call your insurance broker. Okay, I, I, I've, I have some clients there in Sacramento. It's hot there. They got swimming pools. And um, one just removed their diving board. It's considered a safety feature by removing your diving board. They save money on their, their homeowner's insurance. You got a 17-year-old who's a driver. Did they just get straight A's on their report card? Do they now qualify for the good uh, student driving discount? Call your broker. Are you getting all those discounts that you could be getting? Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, this, and then it's going to – it's, it's money saving. And, and, this, and this is a really brilliant point you're touching on. I'm so glad we're here because I, I, I love to I, – I, I'm not your typical Brit, right? Because when you go to places like uh, Marrakesh or certain parts of the world uh, around Europe as well um, – it's the done thing to negotiate. Yeah. If, they, if they give you a price and they say whatever it might be in their currency, but I'm going to use pounds as an example. Mm -hmm. If they're trying to get, sell you something in the market or in a shop or whatever it might be, and it's 10 pounds, they expect you to lowball them with, oh, no, four. Right. That's the first thing they expect you to go back with. This is now, we're talking negotiation, right, Lucia? Yeah. And then they'll come back with, oh, no, 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 no eight. Right. And you go back and say, no, no, no. no. Six. And whatever it might end up falling in the middle of, it might end up at seven. You still manage to negotiate down three, three, three pounds, right. okay? When I do it, and I do it over the simplest things mm -hmm. sometimes, which people close to me find hilarious, um, I get a real sense of, yes, yeah. wow, yep. it's great. But if we just, for the benefit of our listeners, think about this for a second. We're in an economically tight time at the moment where people are watching a lot of their dollar or their pound or their euro or wherever they may be. If we can just trim a couple of, you know, ounces off of the, the price, then it helps, our, it helps our overall budget. And it might just be small things like you say, Lucia. It might be the fact that, hey, we took the, 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 the board out of the pool and we got a discount on our insurance. Our, 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 our kids have been an A driver for, for six, seven months. We spoke to the insurance company and they gave us a discount. Yeah. Now, it might not be something as obvious as that. It may be that you're going to buy, I don't know, something like, if you're in that market buying a car, when you go onto a car forecourt, it's it's known there's always room for negotiation. But if you don't ask, the salesman is not going to give you anything away because that's pounds out of his pocket in his commission check. So it's it's a really interesting 
point you've made there, and it can be anything from small to large to medium to anything, negotiating certainly on purchase or existing things, you know, and and you're right. If we don't ask, we don't know. And when yeah. you do ask and you get that reward back, it really does give you a sense of, oh, yes. Yeah, well, but that's because also people love to feel that a negotiation was hard won. Hard won. <laughs> so that's part of part of your planning is going to be your concession yeah. plan. You're going to make a concession plan ahead of time, okay? What can, what are things you are going to give up along the way, including decoy concessions, concessions that maybe don't really mean anything to you, but the other side either doesn't know that or it actually has value to them when it doesn't have much value to you, okay? Plan your concessions ahead of time. I call it asking for a pony when you really want a kitten and know <laughs> that you're going to be making concessions. It triggers reciprocity by the other side. Well, why should they make concessions if you haven't? And it allows people to feel that a deal was hard won. We love that feeling. Ha, I won. You know, and it is, it's in the little ways and it's in the, it's in the big deals as well. But the, the way we get big change is through little change, right? If you're waiting yeah. for your big moment to have a big impact on a, I don't know, a national yeah. or international stage, you are squandering small everyday opportunities. Small is big. Yeah. And coming back to this gym analogy that you used early on in, in, in this in this episode, you know, you don't go to the gym for the first time and try and lift the heaviest kilos that the guy in the gym who's got, got muscles coming out of his arms like there's no tomorrow. You don't go and try and lift that same weight the first time you enter the gym, right? Because you're not going to and it's going to scare you. You're probably going to pull a muscle. It's going to be painful and, 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 and you're going to think, oh, you know, that was, you know, and you're going to feel very demoralized. But if you start with the small weight and yeah. then build up within a year or even less or months, whatever it might be, the timeline that it is, you're going to be lifting that same weight and it's going to be the same thing with negotiation, right, yeah. Lucia? Exactly. It's exactly right. And it's, it's just a matter of building the muscles. I want to normalize negotiation because you're right, haggling in our two cultures where we live, people don't want to do it. They shy away from it. They hate it. It's it's actually even synonymous with conflict. And I'm like, in fact, yeah. in fact, negotiation is a word that is used synonymously with conflict. And I'm like, time out on the field. Okay, conflict resolution is certainly one category of negotiation, but it's only one category. Okay, you are missing out. All right. So I'm here to normalize it, right? If you're not negotiating, then that's abnormal. <laughs> That's kind of what I want to say. Again, let's yeah. flip that script. Let's let's debunk that myth that it's for a specialized skill for specially trained people. Well, you're that's you're going to be that specially trained person. You know, you don't have to spend yeah. a lot of money doing it. You don't, yeah. have to, you don't have to spend money at a gym either. I don't belong to a gym anymore. I do have six-pack abs. Okay. I, I do it at <laughs> home. I do 20-minute hard, hard work. I mean, I'm cursing during my workouts. That's how hard they are. They are 20 right. minutes. They are effective. They are efficient and they are free at, at home. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm like yeah. your money saver. I want you to save money. And it can be other things. I just, something else that's just come to mind is like, for example, if there's a group of you doing something, say to the, say to the venue, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, I, I normally come just me and my partner. It's normally, you know, just me coming in, but I've got a group of 10 coming in. Do you give a group discount? Exactly. You know? Right. And, 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 and as bold as, as, and as simple as that might sound, it is a form of negotiation. Well, you say bold and simple. This is, I am not splitting the atom here. Now, if you listen to my podcast or you're listening to me right now going, well, gosh, that's not really rocket science. No, it's not rocket science. These are simple things all of you can be doing in, in low stakes ways and building coalitions, considering third parties. Those are all negotiation tools. Building coalitions is one of the, there's a whole chapter on negotiating with bullies. The only negotiation book I know of that has a chapter on negotiating with bullies, okay? In your book? Yes. Yes. Wow. Remember what I said, I realized this pattern over the course of my entire life that I had been bullied and I had been normalizing it because it was so familiar to me that I normalized it for over two decades, even in a professional context. And I went, wow. Wow. All right, we gotta we gotta do something about negotiating with bullies here because there is no other book that has it. Okay, um, 
And there's something about building coalitions in, in there as well. Um, and, you know, using third parties. I know that you wanted to know how to get a toddler to eat their peas. I, I can't remember if you said it while we were recording or if you said it to me before. But <laughs> that, so, so let's talk about power versus leverage, right? Those, those are two terms that are also often used synonymously. They are not the same thing. So you right. can be the more powerful party, but not be the party that leverage favors. Okay. And leverage is dynamic. Just because you have it doesn't mean you should use it and doesn't mean you're going to hold on to it. It can shift. So the best way I have found of explaining the difference is this. As between you and your three-year-old, who is the more powerful party? You are. You're the adult. You are bigger. You are stronger. You have more experience. You have better cognitive skills and control over your, your motor skills. But if you want your toddler to eat their peas, your toddler is the only one who can eat the peas. Your toddler <laughs> has the leverage. I love that. Okay? Now you understand the difference, right? So how are you going to get your toddler to eat their peas, right? Well, maybe there's a uncle that they have who they really adore and you invite that uncle over and they watch oh. their uncle gobble up their peas and say oh i just love peas they make me feel so good and strong and they want to be just like uncle mark so they gobble up their peas leveraging third parties right ask yourself why is it important that my child eat the peas what is it about the peas is it because i have to feel like a good parent that well, I got to make sure they get their vegetables, you know, and it's somehow a failure on my part that they're not eating the peas. Could, could I substitute the peas for something else? And, and it would serve the same purpose. And then we can all save face and move on and watch that movie. You know, <laughs> what is it about the peas? You know, uh, like, what are the requirements? Does it have to be a vegetable? Does it have to be a green vegetable? Do they just not like green food? Could it be cauliflower? Uh, you see what I'm saying? I mean, do you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> what you don't do is get into a power struggle <laughs> with a three-year-old. I mean, for the love of God, don't do it. But I love that example, and that's going to stick in my mind so well. Yeah. And, and it's, just, it's just brilliant, Lucia. I mean, look, I've got to ask you this because <clears> – <throat> We spoke off air about stories and the, the importance of storytelling and da 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 da, da and, and how it's intrinsically in, in, our, in our DNA as human beings that stories have always been shared with each other. Tell me or tell our listeners again, Lucia, that example that you told me off air about the story when you're not supposed to mention something. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's so funny. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then you do. Right. And because. And, and, you, and you, you, say, you say, you use the example when you say to people, don't think pink elephants, don't think pink elephants, don't think pink elephants. Right, right. And then all of a sudden they're like, I can't get pink elephants out of my head. So yeah. We'll see, yeah. We'll uh, see <laughs> I'll tell the story. And it's, by the way, but also a negotiation tool. Right? A repetition yeah, okay. of a word, repetition, and politicians use it. Yep. I like the way you link that I, in. I, I link, I link everything to negotiation <laughs> because it all relates back to negotiation. I'm like that, that man with a hammer, a woman with a hammer, right? Everything looks like a nail. And um, politicians do it all the time, right? That, that uh, keyword squatting, I think, is what they, they call it. And now all of a sudden, everyone is saying that word. Uh, oh, so, the, so the story was um, so it's an ex boyfriend who had a girlfriend before me who they were going to meet. It was either her parents or her grandparents. It must have been her grandparents. And she said, now listen, my grandparents don't believe in the moon landing. They believe it was all a hoax. So whatever you do, don't mention the moon landing. <laughs> It's like, what? why would you mention the moon landing? It doesn't exactly like, come up. And I was like, she shouldn't have said anything. So they get in there and they're having their cake and tea and whatnot. And he just starts babbling and he's saying, what? I just, you guys have been through so much and seen so much and changes in history and war. And I mean, men landing on the moon. <laughs> She's like, what? And they just froze. Like, it was like time stood still. She's like, what's the one thing I told you not to say? 
And that's the the example of, you know, when people say to us, whatever you do, don't mention, Uh you know, and then because it's just been planted in us, we never were were going to mention it before that. We weren't, but now we will, right? And it's it's not something you could do in negotiation where you could come in, you know, you could come into the room and be like, well, feels like a hundred million degrees out there. Well, okay, now a hundred million is a number that's in the air. I'm, I'm telling you. (laughs) I'm <laughs> just telling you. <laughs> oh, Lucia, you've given us some some great insights. You've shared some pearls of your wisdom and your 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 amazing book with with leverage, negotiation, power, bullying, negotiation. Just so many points, and I know there's lots, lots more inside this amazing book. Um, how can our audience find? you if you want them to find you or or how can where's the best place they can go to get the book you know the book is in various places probably the most global place is amazon so uh-huh. so for for your listeners I, they probably should just go to amazon for the forces of good the superpower of everyday negotiation and if you like dogs there's a chocolate labrador on the cover because i told the design team it was non-negotiable that a chocolate Labrador had to be incorporated on the cover. And then otherwise, I am I'm not so much on social media, although I'm on, I am on LinkedIn. I'm otherwise not, but I'm so on the internet. If you just Google me, I'm like two on the internet. I, I should be less on the internet, but because I just get interviewed and yeah, you can find me easily. <laughs> so. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. And just find just finally, for those listeners not watching the video content of this episode there's a there's a sign behind you uh, a, a frame saying <laughs> life is short by the shoes mm. now i know mm-hmm. you're italian i know you're stylish mm-hmm. and i know mm. women generally i don't like to generalize but women do like shoes but so do men so is there is there a funny last snippet you can give us about life is short by the shoes lucia or is it just one of those things that's it, it is i think you know res ipsa loquitur uh the thing speaks for itself you can get your pants from pants are us but you do not mess around with shoes the shoes are beautiful <laughs> yes mic drop <laughs> Mic drop. There she goes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lucia. It's been amazing. You've Thank been an amazing you. guest. Oh, it was and, so and, much uh, fun, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. And uh, have a great day. And uh, we'll rush out there and buy your book straight away. Thank you so much. I think you'll agree that was quite a story. Join me again for next week's episode of Ian Beaton's. So, what's your story? If you enjoyed this episode, it meant something to you, or maybe you think a friend or a loved one might like to listen to it too, go ahead and share it with them. Remember, if you have a story you'd like to share, or perhaps you know someone who does, I invite you to join me on my podcast. I can be contacted by email, web, or social. Thank you. You've just listened to So what's your story?